Right, good morning. Welcome to our morning Bible study. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 8 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 8, and then we're going to look at some verses in chapter 10 as well. In preparation for next week, if you'd like to read ahead for that, the lesson will be 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. Today we're going to start with 1 Samuel 8. Parents uh, wear many hats, and one of these requires rendering judgment or discipline between uh, siblings on the basis of parental authority in the household. And when siblings disagree, they can seek a word straight from the top that might fall in their favor. Uh, if you think back whenever you were a child, if you had siblings, maybe, maybe if you didn't have any siblings, maybe you knew of another family or had some friends that had siblings. Uh, what are some sibling squabbles that had to be settled in your house? What are some of the things? Fights over toys. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Space, yeah, that's a big one in our house. <laughs> Fight over space. Who gets what bed? Who gets to be where? Yeah, what else? Okay, clothes, yeah. Bedtime, okay, yep. What, maybe what uh, TV program to watch or um, what game to play. You know, there's, there's so many things that, that we deal with. And ultimately, it's the, the parent's job to determine what should be done um, Sometimes it falls in our favor, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the, the uh, parents get so upset that nobody gets their way, right? <laughs> so you just, that's it, <laughs> you're done. Um, when Samuel gathered the people together, uh, the, in our text here, the fate of an entire nation was at stake. But would the people recognize his authority and would they recognize the authority behind Samuel, who ultimately is God himself, before we get into the lesson, just a little bit of review uh, about the text and the books of First and Second Samuel. In the, in the arrangement of the books of the Old Testament, First and Second Samuel are included with 12 historical books. Now, um, the Old Testament did not always used to be divided this way. Um, anyone recall how these, these books, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, um, how were they organized originally? Anybody know? What's that? They were one book, yeah. So instead of having them separated into two parts, they were just one book. The book of Chronicles, the book of Kings, the book of Samuel. And they, they fall in the, the, within what we refer to as the 12 historical books in the Old Testament. First um, and Second Samuel record the transition from a theocracy to a monarchy. Now, what's the difference between the two? Because it's important for, for our text to understand what, what's the difference between a theocracy and a monarchy. Yeah? Theocracy, God's in charge. Okay. Monarchy, the king's in charge. Okay, very good. So in a monarchy, the king's in charge. In a theocracy, 
It means God's in charge. God's the supreme ruler. Uh, we get that word from the Greek word theos. You can kind of see it in theocracy, so meaning uh, God's in control or God rules. The, the people of Israel here are going to end up going from that, from a, a, the perfect rule of God, theocracy, to a monarchy being governed by an earthly king. And the books of First and Second Samuel are divided into some major sections. Now, First and Second or First Samuel really uh, gives to us the end of the period of the judges, because uh, Samuel himself is sometimes referred to as the last of the. Anybody know who's he? The last of the Mohicans. He's the last of the. The judges, right? And the first of the prophets. So he, he kind of gives the, he's a, an in-between type of, of ruler or in-between type of leader. Uh, so the first part of 1 Samuel really gives us the, the end of the ju- period of the judges. And then God's selection of the first king, who is Saul. And then God's selection of the second king, who is David, and then the demise of Saul and the establishment of David's throne. So if we want to read about Saul, or Samuel really, the, the end of the period of the judges, the end of Samuel's life, uh, Saul's reign, and then the beginning of David's reign, we'd go to 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel uh, starts with the establishment of David's throne and then David's sin, his flight from Jerusalem, the reestablishment of his throne in Jerusalem, and then eventually David's legacy at the end of 2 Samuel. So if we want to know really about the life and the rule of David, we go to 2 Samuel. So the, the period of the judges lasted more than 300 years. Uh, some say from about 1380 to 1050 B.C. And so to, to put some dates on this, uh, if we go back to the time of Moses, when, when about approximately did Moses rule, or when, when was Moses in charge? Approximately. Just rough dates. About, about 1,500 years B.C. Okay? Maybe a little bit more, a little bit less, but it's a, if you, to put a kind of a round number on it, it's about 1,500 years B.C. And then David... David is about, when he comes on the scene, is about, anybody know? About 1,000 B.C. So this time period of the judges is in between Moses and David and uh, lasts for more than 300 years. And so about the time that that Samuel's life is ending and Saul is coming on the scene, it's around 1,000 B.C., maybe a little bit more than that, maybe 1050 or so B.C., now, the, the judges uh, had a specific purpose for God's people during the time of the judges, and they, they administered justice, and um, they were God's chosen military leaders. We think about some of the military leaders in, in the book of Judges. Uh, you think of uh, people like Gideon, right? Um, who, else, who else is there that were off? What's that? Okay, Samson. Who else? You got Deborah, right? got uh, Othniel, 
and Ehud and all these, all these different military leaders that God raised up to, to bring about justice uh, on behalf of His people when they were oppressed by the foreign invaders. And this is referred uh, back in Judges chapter 2, if you go back and read that, Judges 2, verses 6 through 19. Uh, Samuel's prophetic ministry began during the later part of those years. And this was a time when Israel had no king, we're told in, in Judges chapter 18. This was also a time when the moral conditions were very chaotic, and sounds a lot like, um, like our time today almost. If we read Judges 21-25, Judges 21-25, right at the end of the book, it says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Or everyone did what was right in their own eyes, as another way that it's put in the book. So in this transitional role, Samuel, again, is referred to as the last of the judges, the first of the prophets. He was one of the greatest of Israel's judges. And after freeing the country from oppressors, he established a circuit court where he would travel around and would administer justice on behalf of the people. And his decisions were highly respected because they were according to God's law. So we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we're going to start with verse 4. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. It says, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. So the, the elders are, are brought together. Uh, the, the little town here that's mentioned, Ramah, is just a little village in the hill country belonging to the tribe of Benjamin. We're not really sure exactly where this was, uh, but they think that it was probably five to ten miles or so outside of Jerusalem. Ramah, uh, ironically, is Samuel's birthplace, and it serves as one of his primary positions for uh, judging. So if people wanted to uh, find Samuel, more than likely this is where he would be. It's unclear, unclear whether the elders of Israel went straight to Ramah or if they met elsewhere and then they traveled together uh, to meet together at this initial meeting. And as their title suggests, these men were the heads of the families and the leaders in their clans. And this is really how, until Israel had a king, this is how a, a lot of the, uh, the judgments, uh, a lot of the, the peacekeeping forces, uh, you know, a lot of the, the rule of the people, it was done through these elders and through these clan leaders who, who would keep the peace and would make sure the families were taken care of. And they formed councils that would govern day-to-day -day life in the tribes of Israel. And describing this group as all the elders suggests there were representatives from each one of the tribes. So every tribe had the, the older men. These would have been older men men who were seen by the community as to having wisdom, having families, and having brought them up in the ways of the Lord. And so then they would be selected to represent the tribes. And, and in this instance, these men are coming together to form a council um, and assemble. Verse 5 says, They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. 
So what a way to start their uh, meeting here. <laughs> Samuel, thanks a lot for all the things you've done for us and how you've judged us so greatly and brought us out from our oppressors. And, but <clears throat> Samuel, you're just old. You got to go. go. <laughs> Man. So they, they, uh, they're pretty quick here to, to cast Samuel aside. And his age caused the elders to worry about the future following his death. Now, that could be the point that they're trying to make. You know, hey, you're, you're getting up there and we, we need to start making some provision here for what's going to happen whenever you're not with us anymore. And it is possible, if they are coming at this from a righteous standpoint, that they're thinking back into Israel's history is the, how quickly the people fell into idolatry and they fell to, to worship uh, false gods uh, after a particular leader's death. And, and that's the, really the cycle that we see through the whole book of Judges, isn't it? Where the, the people, they, they sin, they start following the idols of the land and, and follow, or, or they're, they're following some foreign leader, and then God brings judgment on them. Then they beg God for mercy. He brings a judge to, to rescue them from their oppressor. And then they're, they're, they have peace for a while. And then that cycle just continues. And that's the hundreds of years throughout the book of Judges, over and over. That's the cycle. They fall into sin. Then they, they, uh, God brings discipline on them. Then they beg for God to bring a deliverer. And he does. And then the people have peace for a while and until they do it again. So they might have been thinking, this is the cycle we've been in for so long, Samuel. What's going to happen when you die? Are we going to go right back into that same type of thing? Uh, maybe they, was, they wanted to be sure before Samuel died that their leadership wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be horrible again, as they had thought in the past, or as they had seen in the past. Or the elders could have been primarily concerned for their children and for their grandchildren. They didn't want them to go through that same type of cycle, same, some of the things that they had seen. And, and this was specifically important because we're told that Samuel's sons, Joel and Abijah, were uh, acting as judges at the time, and they were failing in their roles. So if we look at verses uh, 1 and 2 of that chapter, 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 and 2, it says, Samuel grew old. He appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. And the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, and they accepted bribes and the perverted justice. So obviously they're not following in the way of their father. And this isn't the first time that we see this in Scripture. Uh, it's amazing how many righteous men we see uh, even men like David. And David paid for his sin, didn't he? His, obviously, uh, his sons picked up on some things that they saw their father did, and they, they uh, did not follow David as far as being men after God's own heart. Um, who are some other people in the Old Testament? You think back. What's that? Yeah, definitely Solomon. Okay, Who are some other sons of, of who we would think of as Great leaders, great men. Who, who were Hophni and Phineas? Yeah, Hophni and Phineas. Yeah. Uh, what about Nadab and Abihu? It's another one. Um, 
going all the way back to the beginning, Cain, murdering his, his brother. So that there's uh, many times where we, we see the, the children not following the ways of their father, and there, there could be a lot of different reasons that, why that is. Uh, but Sam, Samuel's sons were immoral men. And uh, at some point during their young life, Samuel didn't tell them no and didn't, didn't make a point to, to discipline them the way that he should have. And so they grow up to be ungodly leaders. Their ungodly leadership led the elders to ask for a king, which ultimately led to the division of Israel and finally to becoming exiles in Assyria and Babylon. So if we trace this back all the way from Israel's captivity days and go backward in time, this is the point in which we can look at and say, hey, because Samuel didn't raise his sons in the way of the Lord, he didn't make a point to pass on that, that legacy. This is where breakdown begins. And Israel sees this lack of leadership, and then they start asking for a king, and then that becomes their downfall. So it makes a huge difference, the, the leaders that are in charge. Think about the leaders that you know of in your life, whether it's leaders at in your workplace, uh, leaders in your family, leaders in the church? Um, and it, are they displaying those characteristics that they're going to pass down to their children, that they make, that they make important uh, in their lives? Because as we see here with, with Samuel, it made a massive difference in the future of Israel, whether or not he was dedicated to his job as leading the people and then passing down that influence to his kids. So they reject the Lord, verses 5 and 6, the end of 5, and then verse 6 says, Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, and so he prayed to the Lord. So even before Israel's entry into the land of Canaan, the Lord knew there would be a time when the people would desire a king, uh, this was foreseen by Moses, and God actually gave him provision for this. Uh, if we read back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, um, and to, to have a king made the nation more like their neighbors instead of less. Now, what are, what's the good and bad here? What is, is there a good and bad, I guess you say, but what are some, some good things that could come from them having a king, potentially? Okay, there's a clear line of authority uh, that they can see, the f a physical representation of authority that, that has a, a dynasty, and, and, and they, they could know that they're going to be secure as far as uh, having a, someone to rule them. But then what are the, the negative sides of that? And we're going to get into that a little bit more. But Yeah, he's going to take over. And, and he lists out some things here, doesn't he, in the, in later on in this chapter. Uh, we're not going to cover it in detail, but um, he mentions some of these things, starting in verse 11, the king's going to reign over you, he's going to claim his rights over you, he's going to take your sons to serve him with his chariots and horses, he's going to assign commanders of thousands and fifties to, uh, to plow, people to plow his ground, reap his harvest, he's going to take taxes, um, you know, on and on and on and on and on, all these things that how the, this physical ruler is going to oppress you. Yeah. Uh, because 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's another good point. Yeah, yeah, they're pushing back. Yeah, who, who else is the, a more perfect leader than God himself? And be patient. Wait for God to, to set up a, a leader for you. Don't, don't push it. But they, that's what they end up doing here. The elders stated their desire to be like all the other nations around them. Now, what's wrong with that? <laughs> there are many in America today that are saying the same kind of thing. Why aren't we like the other nations of the world? Why aren't we more like the European countries? Why aren't we more like this country? And uh, you know, it, there's sentiment here that where where we're even looking at countries like Ukraine. Oh, we need to defend them and give them money and you know, like they're this wonderful bastion of freedom. Ukraine's a horrible country. It's been a horrible country. They, they, if read, watching the news, you wouldn't know that, would you? Because of all the help that we're given. But they're basically run by a dictator. It's really no different than Russia. It's a horrible country. We shouldn't be sending money and armament and all kinds of stuff over there to help the Ukraine in their situation. It's sad that the people are in that situation, but it's not a, it's not a country where there's going to be freedom like there, there is in America. But many people want us to be like countries like that. They want us to be like the European countries where there's less freedom. Be like all the other nations. I mean, what, what, how would we have it better than what we have in America? There, there is no better country still in the world. That's why everybody wants to come here and to be here. But this, this is the, the same plight here that, that they're, they're going through. Uh, the people of Israel say, well, we just want to be like all the other nations around us. We don't want to have a government like they do. We want to have a king to rule over us. So God specifically chose Israel and made the nation holy so that it wouldn't be like all the other nations. Turn back to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Verses 5 and 6. It says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So what was God's promise to them if they would do that? If they would... Yeah. What, what better situation could they have than to be God's treasured possession? But it required that they keep His commands and they keep His, His holy precepts. Trying to blend in by having a king as the other nations really was a faithless response because they, they weren't trusting God to provide what they needed to be the ruler that they needed uh, at this time. In the time of the judges, Israel functioned as a theocracy, which was being led by God. But the eldership was not interested in waiting for God to raise up another judge as he had been doing for many generations so far. And their demand to Samuel can very well be seen as one of grave disrespect toward the prophet. And ultimately, who is this disrespect against? To God. Yeah, really, they're, they're not rejecting Samuel. They're rejecting God, aren't they? And Samuel, he's displeased by this. 
And uh, when he saw the elder's desire to reject the Lord, and he prays to the Lord. So what situations today tempt Christians to embrace cultural norms that contradict their allegiance to God and His Word? What situations today tempt, uh, tempt even Christians to embrace cultural norms that contradict their allegiance to God? Because really that's what's happening here. They're, they're wanting to, to just accept a cultural norm. All the other nations around us are doing these things. They, they, have, they have kings. And ultimately that's what they end up doing with idol worshiping too. You know, they accept all these other false gods. Oh, they're doing it. Why can't we do it? And they're accepting the, those cultural norms of their day and they, they defy their allegiance to God in doing that. Now, how do we do that today? Because it's a temptation, strong temptation in today's day and age for even Christians. Yeah? Acting as though God, God's okay with the lifestyles that okay. some people have. Yeah, just, just accept it. Yeah, Whether just act it's, like it's okay. Yeah, yeah. living together or mm-hmm. homosexuality. Yeah. And, and yeah. for us to say, that's all right. It's okay. God, yeah. God's changed his mind. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What else? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it is a temptation to, to not, not share the truth with someone because we're afraid of offending them in some way um, because it's something that we know that they, they believe strongly. Um, when we do that, evangelism stops, though, doesn't it? We really, yeah. How we dress. Okay, yeah, how we dress is a big one, um, making sure that we're not just accepting the cultural norm, you know, whatever's fashionable or, or trendy. Um, yeah. Okay. Thing. Yeah. Things like that. Things like Santa Claus and Easter Bunny. Um, yeah. To uh, to tell tell our children lies about those things that uh, that's always been that's kind of a pet peeve issue for me. <laughs> I've never never practiced those things or never did any of that with our kids, um, but. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they, they can be presented as good stories, but to present those things as though they're truth or fact or as though they're real um, is not good. As when your kids finally learn that they're not real, then they look back and they say, well, did they really lie to me about that? <laughs> is that you know, so there, you cause, it's cause immediate question uh, with your kids if you act as though those things are true um, when they're not. Yeah, and so just accepting cultural norms. Uh, one, we have a big one coming up here at the end of this month. Too many Christians dress up like nasty things and go out as ghosts and goblins and witches and go trick or treating or are part of you know parties and things like that. That that this stuff's evil. 
You know, why do we want to be associated with the presence? Even that we're told in Scripture to avoid, avoid even the, the hint or the appearance of evil. So if we're to avoid the appearance of evil, then why would we dress up like horrible things and go and participate in Halloween parties or, or trick-or-treating, things like that? So we have to be really careful that we don't, we don't cause people to, to, to see us doing those things they say, oh, well, they're fine with that. They're accepting that cultural norm. And another big one is things like drinking. It's another, it's another huge cultural norm. Oh, it's okay for me to go home and have a beer at night. Nobody sees me. It's okay. Yeah, but then when, when the neighbor sees the beer bottles piled up at the end of the week when you put your trash out, what are they thinking? What is the example that we're, put, that we're pointing across? What's the cultural norm that they see us accepting? Now, I know I'm hitting some buttons here, but we have to think about these types of things, folks, because people watch us. We're, we're called to be a holy people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That mean, literally means to be set apart as the people of God so that when they look at us, they see our good deeds and they can glorify our God in heaven. And it's very difficult to do that when we just accept the cultural norms of the day. Yeah? We, we downplay a lot. I don't want to go on a rabbit hole too much, but we downplay the seriousness of stumbling blocks. You know, I think yeah, we do. Willing to not eat meat mm-hmm. For the sake of somebody yeah. being affected negatively by it or taken away from the kingdom. It's not wrong mm-hmm. with meat, but the effect it can have on certain people is yeah. way more. Yes, it, it can. It can have a huge effect on people. Mm-hmm. Then to cause your brother to stumble into sin, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's a, a, there's a lot, lot there. Just some, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, follow, yeah. following the material things and making that a... Uh, of, um, the main pursuit in our lives. Yep, that's a, that's a huge one in today's day and age. But Samuel here, he, doesn't, he, he does not lash out at the people. He doesn't bring retribution on them when they ask for this request. What are we told that he does? He prays. And what a great example. You know, that, that whenever we're faced with a, a difficult situation, um, we should, that should be our initial uh, response is to pause, to pray, and to avoid the, uh, any, any lashing out that we might be tempted to do. So this was a, a pause with purpose. Rather than an avoidance of conflict, Samuel knew that something needed to be done with this, but he doesn't make the decision himself. He doesn't allow the, the people to immediately make the decision. He goes to God in prayer. And we would do well to follow this example. Um, not avoiding conflict or simply giving into someone else's demands, um, but also not responding in the heat of the moment and seek God's will before we say something and before we act. Verse 7 says, And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Ultimately, God gets to the point here, doesn't he? 
It's not you they're rejecting, Samuel. It's me. I've taken care of them. I've, I've done all this for them, going all the way back to bringing them out of the land of Egypt, taking them through the wilderness, taking care of them through the time of the judges, promising them a land, which he, ends up, which he ended up giving them. And now they're rejecting him, not being patient on the Lord. And this rejection may have felt like a referendum on how Samuel raised his sons, if not also on how he had led Israel. But the Lord set the prophet straight when he said the people's demanding a king was primarily about rejecting God's reign as it had been carried out to that point. And then is now trusting in God's governance requires great faith. It's much easier to look to a king or in our, our circumstance here in America, look to a president or look to Congress for direction than to wait on the Lord. Even the apostles feared what would happen when Jesus was no longer physically with them. What follows in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 20, reveals the elders' lack of comprehension concerning what it would mean to be ruled by a monarch. You know, that's the list of all the, those things that the king's going to impose on them. And they failed to consider that a king or a dynasty was likely to end up tyrannical. That at some point, they're going to bring about a, a very harsh ruling situation. That, that ends up happening, doesn't it? Um, we, even right after Solomon... What happens? The kingdom splits, but what happens as a result of Solomon's uh, grandiose rule and all, all, this, uh, all this lavish lifestyle that Solomon has, has started to live? He acquires all this wealth and he acquires all these, all these wives and has all these children and now he's got this massive, huge kingdom that he's got to take care of and what has to happen to support that kingdom? Yeah, taxes, 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 and they just, they just keep piling on the taxes. And uh, it, it causes a lot of, of harsh living circumstances for the people just a couple of generations after this. So although God had delivered Israel from Egypt, He would not hear their cry when the king they wanted oppressed them. And with these warnings, the men went back to their home. So let's, let's look over at chapter 10. We'll spend a couple of minutes there before we close, look at a few verses. 1 Samuel chapter 10, starting in verse 17. After the Israel, uh, Israelite elders had expressed their desire for a king, uh, Samuel met Saul, whom God had revealed to be his choice for the first king and. In chapter or first part of chapter 10, Samuel secretly anoints Saul. So then Samuel summoned the people, starting verse 17, of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. So Samuel brings all the people together again, and he starts off this address by reminding them, Remember, this is who God is. God's the best king. God's the one who can deliver you. God's the one who has proven himself to you in the past. And it almost echoes what Moses had said during his farewell speech, uh, giving Israel insight and instruction for the future. And uh, Samuel here is trying to remind them, this is what it, you're gonna, really you need to think about what it's going to be like. 
before we finally do this here, you need to think real long and hard. This is what life's going to be like without God being your king. Verse 19, But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your disasters and all your calamities. And you have said, No, appoint a king over us. Because God, God's the one that can bring you out of any, any difficulty. He's, and He's proven it over and over and over, but you, you're, you're rejecting Him. Samuel could not in good conscience proceed without reminding the nation of God's great deeds and their rejection of Him. And this was likely a call to repentance. And at the very least, Samuel would have hoped the people would not forget the Lord even when they had an earthly king. If you ask me, my life was hijacked by the lottery, Donna Micken wrote in her article, how winning the lottery led to emotional bankruptcy. Before she won the New York State Lottery, which was worth $34.5 million, she was basically a happy person. And when she won, she believed the money was the ultimate fulfillment of her desires. But she did not realize how winning would affect her emotional health, and she became, became preoccupied with others' perception of her, and she felt guilty for winning over other people and ended up controlling her emotional state, her emotional state to the point where she wished she never had won it in the first place. And uh, you hear stories like that you know, over and over about people who, who come into huge amounts of money and is it really a fulfillment of all their desires? What, is it, what does it lead to in many cases? Yeah, a lot more trouble, a lot more responsibilities, more people grabbing at you, wanting that money, right? It's really, it's a lot, a lot of difficult, uh, difficult road ahead when you come into that kind of money. And there's a lot of people that just don't know how to handle it. And uh, in this case, she wished that she never would have won it in the first place. And similarly, the, the Israelites believed this king is going to be their ultimate fulfillment. He's going to bring about everything they needed and desired. But God told Samuel to give the people what they wanted, knowing it was not what they really needed. How many times do we get what we want in life only to realize it does not satisfy us? And we find ourselves chasing after those things. You chase after a job. Uh, maybe chase after a relationship. Uh, maybe chase after possessions. But those things can't really take the place of God, can they? Because where, where are we going to find ultimate fulfillment? Only in Christ. Only in Christ. Yeah. He, he, was a, he became a Navy SEAL, but then he became a Christian, and like he thought that becoming a SEAL would like produce the ultimate like satisfaction. But he was yeah. like, totally lost, like when he, he became one. So he's he, he had a quote. He said, uh, "The darkest day or darkest time for a man is when he finally obtains what he that which he thought would produce the ultimate, but mm -hmm. in the end it lets him down." Yeah. I mean, then he talked yeah. about how coming to Christ was like mm -hmm. you know actually gave him fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah, now he had a per bigger purpose, a real purpose, yeah, for life. Yeah. Yeah, we need to not be fooled by the things of this world because that that's Satan's 
that's his greatest MO, really, that is to, to get us chasing after things and going down these, these materialistic or, or uh, other, other types of rabbit holes to chase after things that really, really don't provide ultimate fulfillment. And it's only in Christ that, that true fulfillment is found. So Samuel says in verse, uh, last part of verse 19, So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. And when Samuel had all Israel come forward by their tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. So they, they cast lots, and this was a, just a way of making a, a choice. Um, Proverbs 16.33 gives us the, the view that it's the Lord who controls the outcome. And in such situation, one marked object was placed in a container with other items that were similar, and the marked item identified God's choice. And in this situation, it was Benjamin. Now, why was Benjamin an unlikely choice? The tribe of Benjamin. They were small. Yes, yes, the smallest of the tribes. What else? In the book of Judges, um, Judges 19 chapter 19 through chapter 21. It's Benjamin that's involved in a particular uh, notorious episode of, of savagery, really. And uh, you can go back and read that on your own. But um, some think that, you know, this is, uh, it, it's kind of uh, ironic that the, the first king was going to come out of that tribe that was such a, a savage tribe uh, just in the recent past. But uh, verse 21 says, Then he, he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin by clan, <clears throat> and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. And so they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he's hidden himself among the supplies. <clears throat> so that should have been a pretty strong indicator. <laughs> Is this really the guy that we want to have leading us? He's back hiding behind the, the supply cart. He's not out front, ready to lead, you know, with a you know, strong intuition and strong ability. Instead, he's hiding among the supplies. The text does not tell us why, leaving us to wonder. Um, it probably wasn't that he was feeling great humility or that, that he was afraid of the challenge because we're told that he, he, he's a lot taller than everybody else, right? He's a head taller than everyone else that was there. Because in verse 23, it says, they, they ran out, they brought him out, they ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. So why was he hiding? Just didn't have, didn't, didn't have that, that quality of wanting to to take on this leadership role. And uh, I think that plagues Saul in many ways. He's not confident of himself. He's not confident of God helping him through his life. Uh, we see Saul uh, going to other sources. You know, we think about like, the situation with the witch at Endor. He's going and consulting uh, spirits and people that are involved in evil practices instead of going to God and seeing what God wants him to do. So Saul... Uh, doesn't start out in a, a very strong way, and he ends his life even in a worse way. And um, 
the people here end up suffering greatly because they choose another king besides the Lord. To end, uh, the last verse here, 24, says Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among all the people. From From a physical sense, no, there wasn't anyone else like him. And then the people shouted, Long live the king. And there certainly wasn't anyone like him uh, from, a, from a standpoint of, of evil either. Saul does some pretty nasty things, trying to kill David multiple times, being jealous, um, not trusting in God. So the people end up getting, getting what they want, and God gives it to them. Despite having been rejected by the people, the Lord chose not to abandon them. He sometimes punished them, but He continued to love His people and work through them. And the same goes for us. Though we make decisions that grieve God, He does not abandon us or stop working through us. He has the power to use even our worst decisions for His glory, as we read in Romans 8.28. So may we seek clarity from the Lord in every decision, resisting worldly wisdom, so that we continue to live out our calling as the priesthood of believers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder, for this lesson today, which helps to teach us to trust in you, to trust your timing, to know that you are the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, and you have our best interest always in mind. Be with us the rest of our day, and we pray that you're with our service as we worship together and remember what your Son did for us on Calvary's cross. It's in His name we pray. Amen.